Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Rob Neal, OBE, and I just wanted to start by saying that Rob is the first OBE, but hopefully not the last, that I have had on my podcast. He's the co-founder of Crystal Alliance, which is a consultancy dedicated to helping organisations be more inclusive. He brings to that role 38 years of working for the UK Civil Service, where he played a pivotal role in bringing ethnicity and race to the forefront of people's minds through his involvement in employee networks and as the leader of Project Race at the MOJ. Welcome, Rob. Really, really excited to have you here today. Uh, it's lovely to see you. Um, and I thought we could just make a start by you could tell us, for those who don't know you, which is probably not very many of my listeners, uh, tell me, uh, tell us a bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Oh, well, firstly, thanks uh, for having me, Melody. Um, it's a joy to be here. Um, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts in, in I guess, this series and thoroughly enjoyed them. So thanks for having me on. Um, for those who don't know me, uh, my name's Rob, Rob Neal. Uh, I'm a former civil servant. Um, when I look back at that, it's um, it, I totted up a total of 38 years. I, I have to pinch myself when I, when I say the digits. Um, but right now I'm, a, um, I'm the founding director at Crystal Alliance, that's Crystal with a K. Um, do hop on listeners at, on our website, lots of free and accessible information there. That's crystalalliance, no spaces, .co.uk. Yeah, and I'll um, add that in the show notes so people could just click straight on it. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, ostensibly what we are, uh, and it does say this on the website, we're a group of friends really that kind of clicked and stayed in touch and, and wanted to do something together. We weren't all together, sure. Uh, and in a sense, our strap line at, at Crystal Alliance does bear that out. Involved to evolve is is our strap line. And, um, and even that has evolved because it wasn't the original strap line. But um, we are a group of friends, um, somewhat experienced. We're talking all of us into double digits of working uh, in either the public, private or voluntary sector. Some of us more than one around this thing that's now called EDI in a lot of places, but equality, diversity and inclusion, and really supporting uh, organizations, uh, small, uh, micro, uh, medium and large organizations that will let us in through their front door, sometimes the back door, to actually do well <laughs> in supporting them to deliver on their um, ambition to be more inclusive in, in what they do and what they offer. Perfect. Thanks, Rob. And we'll come back to that. You can tell us a bit more about some of those things uh, towards the end. But let's leap back in time. You said you'd worked for the civil service for 38 years, which is mm. amazing. Big leap. Um, big leap. Um, yeah, big leap. And I met you when you were working for the civil service. But maybe you could start um, and tell us a bit about how you even got into the civil service in the first, first place. What made you want to work there? How did you even get a job there sure um 
the civil service was actually a, a second choice as a career. My my, mm -hmm. my initial choice, um, my first um, realistic choice was was to become a police officer. I say realistic because um, even now I could still see myself playing some kind of role in that establishment, as, as challenging as I, I know it must be. Um, I know a few police officers and, and I, I know that that could have been a fit for me. But um, my very first ambition was to be a professional footballer. Um, but I realised relatively early on, including my school days, that whilst I love the game and continue to love the game, um, I was never going to be good enough to be a professional footballer. I was never going to earn my living at it. So I carried on playing a while, um, competitively after leaving school. But, but I, I, I moved from my Saturday job which was uh, in retail in a shoe shop in Kilburn uh, called Curtis. They're no longer around, but part of the British Shoe Corporation. I, I turned from that job um, to the civil service after um, acknowledging that my, uh, my partner at the time, uh, to become my wife later on, uh, refused to endorse my, my application, my ambition to be a police officer. She, she feared I might not come home of an evening or indeed mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, we very much wanted to make decisions together at that time in our journey. And so I looked up the next best thing and it seemed to be working in the civil service, meeting the needs of, of people in the community, um, but working close to law. And so I applied to what was then the Lord Chancellor's department uh, later to become the Department of Constitutional Affairs, and even later than that, to become what we now know today as the Ministry of Justice. Okay, perfect. Um, um, you know, you you've when we spoke before, you told me a little bit about that experience of applying for the civil service. You know, how did you find? You know, it can be quite a long process sometimes. Lots of interviews. How did you find that process? Well, I kind of, um, the industry of it and the kind of um, protocol of it, I, I kind of had gotten used to in so much as I, I remember quite well that I'd, I'd made quite a lot of applications to different places under that umbrella called the civil service. Um, back in the day, we're talking the early 80s, recruitment was centralised. You had to go off to, I think it was Charles House, somewhere in the middle of London, um, and whilst I, I don't sit, sit here or I don't speak with you as anyone who professes to be an expert geographically, in fact, geography I was rubbish at, <laughs> I do know that, that London's a vast place. I do know that there's lots of um, sort of weight to it and lots of, you know, it's almost a labyrinth in itself. So uh, both viscerally uh, in terms of travelling for interviews and filling in the paperwork, I kind of, I didn't know it at the time, Melody, but... I, I was kind of uh, being prepared for what was to come. You know, lots of uh, form filling, um, lots of process, lots of requirement and qualifications required. Um, not necessarily at an advanced level so much, but but lots of it volume wise. So the process wasn't wasn't anything that phased me, um, but because I, I knew it was coming. But that doesn't mean that I didn't grow tired of some of it at, at times and, and wish it could be streamlined. And that was later on to become an impetus for some of the work I would do in, in transformation. Mm. And I remember you telling me about um, a story, but you were talking about my mate Trev. Is that something <laughs> that you were said during your interview? Is that uh, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I was told later on, after I'd um, been given the green light and, and been told to start, in fact, start that, that very next day after the interview, I was asked to wait outside the waiting room after the interview. Then I was called back in. And then I was told, you know, almost at odds with some of this process that I was referring to, I, I was, I think they were desperate. I think they needed people straight away. But but my interview was, I, I don't know if I would describe it as a shambles, but it was definitely weighted in favour of speaking of others. And in particular, my very close friend at that time, who also ended up joining the civil service, uh, working specifically and directly for the administration around the police, actually, and forged a, a, a three decade plus career in that space. Um, his name is Trevor. Uh, I refer to him lovingly as Trev. And we were we were joined at the hip somewhat from from sixth form in school, out of school into our football um, ambition. Um, and we we played together. We worked at things together and we we had a regard and a respect and indeed a love for each other that always had each other's name on the tip of our tongues. We liked the same sort of music. We hung out um, in all our discretionary time together. We went shopping and parties and raves and all that kind of stuff. So unbeknown to me, I was mentioning his name so much in the interview that <laughs> it, it became it became quite endearing to, um, I was interviewed by a two member panel, uh, both women, I can see them vividly now, um, and um, Alison and Julie, uh, and and they later on, about a fortnight later, as I recall, both walk, working in that same office, they said to me, Rob, your interview was hilarious. <laughs> and I said, why? And they said, because you kept on talking about Shrem. <laughs> and we thought it was, we thought it was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, I think because of the process, uh, candidates may end up, whether reluctantly or otherwise, talking a lot about themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've got a bit of a reputation for being able to do that at times, uh, i.e. talk about myself. But on this occasion, for whatever reason, I was talking a lot about Trev. <laughs> and what did your family think of you uh, going into the civil service? Is that, uh, you know, is it considered to be a good, solid career move? Absolutely, yeah. My mum... Uh, in particular, my mum thought it was the best thing uh, I could ever have done. Uh, she was a little bit confused by it. Uh, me joining the Lord Chancellor Department and the local county court, it so happened, civil law, Wilsdon County Court, uh, literally about uh, almost a thousand yards uh, from from where I was living with with mum at the time. Uh, she she concluded that I would one day become a judge. <laughs> She, she felt that as long as I worked hard, kept my head down, you know, offered my best, um, uh, delivered my best, then, um, then I would one day sit as a, as a, as a circuit judge. Um, and I, I did try explaining on a number of occasions, uh, but she always interpreted my explanation as me having a lack of ambition. She, <laughs> she, she would often, even in my presence, tell brothers, cousins, my aunts, uncles, um, that she she felt that I lacked ambition because I kept on telling her I wouldn't become a judge. Um, and one of the ironies in this in this journey of mine is that my my eldest child now um, my daughter who, Rianne, who's thirty she she actually joined the civil service two weeks after I left. She uh, she is today a prosecuting lawyer working at the Crown Prosecution Service. 
<laughs> so she's living out your mum's fantasy, even, out, even yeah. if you weren't. Even if I'm not. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> That's good of her. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So let's let's take a jump because uh, you know we've we've got quite a lot of uh, career to cover, really. Mm. And um, let's jump what maybe ten years uh, for when you've been. You know, the civil service has quite a. Uh, you know, a, a, a promotion process that's maybe yeah. a little bit different to uh, other organisations and you'd not necessarily been successful a couple of times. Mm. Do you want to talk a bit about that and, and what happened during that time? Sure. Well, it, it kind of spans um, at least at least two thirds of my career in terms of putting myself up and forward for um, promotion, uh, usually in the shape and form of a, of a dream role, certainly for me. Um, I don't ever recall. I, I had a total of seven interviews during my career um, and I failed three of them and, and succeeded at four of them. Um, and I literally failed the, the first three that I went for. Um, mm -hmm. um, and looking back, I mean, this is all with, with hindsight. Um, as, as, as Zadie Smith says in her wonderful book, White Teeth, hindsight is always in 2020 vision. Um, I can see clearly why some of at least a couple of those uh, failures um, came about. Um, I can see how I was able to successfully um, uh, take on some of those interviews later on in my career, certainly the second half of my career. But in, in answer to your question, um, the, the process was very much about, certainly early on, there has been an evolution in the process, but early on, it was about you acquiring the required uh, markings in your uh, annual appraisal. Um, really, uh, all of that down to your line manager. Your line manager, A, marking you fitted for promotion, so capable of working at the higher level, mm -hmm. um, and you declaring your uh, ambition to work at the higher level. The, the, you needed both. Um, and if you got both, you could then uh, put your name, uh, apply for, for a job, um, at the higher level, wherever that may be, within the same office or indeed elsewhere. They were advertised internally quite quite well. And then it, it, upon reading of your application, if you were what's called sifted in, you then got called for an interview. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that you would get the job you were going for. If you passed the mark, you might sometimes end up what was called pull a ticket. You would be in a queue to get a job at that level somewhere else but you were deemed ready for the next so Almost like a badge that you're yeah. ready and then you yeah. maybe wait until yeah. there's appropriate roles. Absolutely. And, and my, my first interview came after bang on 10 years uh, in, the, in the civil service. I'd applied a couple of years before um, for, for one or two posts um, and consecutive years, but, but was deemed not ready for that next level by my, my line manager or line managers at the time. So once you didn't get that green light, you couldn't, you, you, you literally technically couldn't go, at that time, you couldn't go for a, for a job. That has changed now, thankfully. There's mm. a lot of power for the line manager. A lot of power and, and we begin, or at least I was then introduced to some of the, um, the you know, the, the rules of work, as it were, but the kind of hurdles that there were and the kind of, door that was opened for bias and, and, and indeed discrimination to enter into people's, uh, to have an impact on people's career and career trajectory. And, um, you know, later on, it was to be revealed, Melody, that there was disproportionate 
uh, marking going on, disparity, which could only be put down to some of the differences between those that had held managerial positions and those that were in sort of team member or job um, job holder positions. And mm. it was it was something that was to um, instigate the the change of that process because it was accepted that there was disproportionality in the way in which appraisal markings were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you you applied a few times um, and then um, Elaine Gibson uh, was quite important, you said, in, in, in supporting you. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Well, she was hugely important. Um, I'm convinced she was, um, I happened to walk in faith, so I'm going to refer to her as an angel because she certainly kept my career on track. She certainly kept me at one point in the civil service um, for for good or bad. Uh, it's all down to Elaine Gibson at, at this point. Some others have played similar roles along the way, but Elaine was 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 fundamental at a point in my career where I had for that third time uh, failed an interview for the next level. Um, I was pretty low um, emotionally. I was pretty low in morale. I. I I literally couldn't understand what I was doing. I'm going to say the word wrong, but what I was not doing in order to get to that next level. And Elaine um, was there for me. She was um, a great listener. I say was, I'm sure wherever she is now, she's a great listener. We're not in touch directly, but um, I know that she was a great listener to me. Uh, and I, I happen to know she, she played a similar role for others. She was a designated and um, full-time career officer. So she was honing her skills as she as she traveled. Uh, we don't, uh, or rather the civil service don't have designated or um, uh, full-time career officers anymore, interestingly. But that was her job uh, and she was very good at it. And she certainly kept me on board um, to, to then go on to serve what would be another 20, 25, 26, 27 years almost uh, by the time I, um, I, I I let go of my beloved civil service. But she was hugely significant and I will forever be in her debt for the role she played in keeping me on track at that time. Mm. And what kind of things did she do? Did she give you advice? What, what was help, particularly helpful about what she well, She did a lot of the... She did? I suppose... I suppose, Melody, she did a lot of the classic things looking back. Again, it's this this hindsight thing. I mean, I was I was I was not in a great place at the time, but she was she was a she was a great listener. She would she had a way of encouraging you to put words to how you were feeling, but in your own time. You know, she wasn't she 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 wasn't rushing you. She wasn't you know she wasn't all over. You know, it wasn't it wasn't so cliched that you know you could have read a book about it or. Or, or listened, you know, back then there weren't podcasts, but but listened to a radio program or a, or, or have it delivered on on a on a TV or a monitor. Uh, she was very human about it. She was very compassionate. Um, she almost felt what I felt. So she, was, I guess, the word is empath empathic. She was very empathetic towards me, but she was also great at getting you to look at perspective and um and a believer in my ability you know she it helped that she at times had worked alongside me so she knew um that it was down to uh, or she was very clear that this was down to the process it was about me getting my head around the process and, and whilst there might be something in my performance at interview that that needed and could be improved 
my actual innate ability to do the work at that next level was in her mind, not even under question. Mm -hmm. You can work at that next level, Rob. I've been around long enough to know. I've seen you work. Um, don't forget that. It's about you getting through the process. And she was very good at that, Melody. She was absolutely brilliant at doing that. Great. And as a result of that, you did then get promoted. You were successful on your fourth attempt. On my fourth attempt. <laughs> you know, there, there was still a part of me that thinks that, that they thought, well, it keeps on coming. We're going to have to. <laughs> You're exhausted, that. though. <laughs> I'm, I, to this day, I'm not convinced that my fourth interview was any better mm. than my, certainly my third. Um, it may well have been better than my first one, I accept, mm -hmm. but but my second and third, I'm not sure there was much discernible difference. But, but you know, I, I had a panel that that seemed to to grab a hold of what I had to say. I'd been coached heavily by Elaine, um, and uh, and that was again hugely significant. Um, and uh, uh, you know, the euphoria that followed when I got that letter to say that uh, you knew by the first three words, by the way, because or, or, or the third word, because the third word was either sorry or pleased. So I'm either <laughs> I'm sorry to inform you or I am pleased to inform you. Uh -huh. And I got the pleased on my third word. And I was, um, I you know, it was party time and um, Elaine wasn't going to escape my my gratitude. So um, that was great. It was right. a great feeling. I'm feeling yeah. some of that. It's Lovely. Um, and I know when we've talked previously, uh, we both talked about the, that paper, the navigating the labyrinth. I think, yeah. you know, civil service is quite complex yeah. um, in terms of progression. And uh, there's a lot of sort of um, unwritten rules and mm -hmm. uh, ways of progressing that are um, uh, that people are just not necessarily aware of. But that paper, navigating the labyrinth, even though it's written specifically around um, social mobility, to me, just is it's worth everybody uh, reading because it's it's really helpful in terms of understanding how, for instance, taking different types of roles can be incredibly um, helpful to your career. And and even actually, I think for people outside of the civil service, just understanding that there are ways of progressing and types of experiences that are worth gaining. Um, <clears throat> Just a really helpful and well written, I think, uh, paper. Oh, it's 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 it, for me. It's a, a powerful paper. It's um, it's uh, perhaps for some revelatory for those of us that have worked in the system and have been looking at the system. Um, it's uh, it it's it's spot on. It's authentic. It's true. It's well informed. It's um, all of those things for sure. Uh, I think there's at least a series of yes minister in that paper somewhere <laughs> or the thick of it or whichever of those you want to pull on um, because you know life imitating art or is it the other way around it's it's all on the money um and some of it um is not just uncomfortable um but some of it's quite painful uh to to read and to uh put into uh context and actually connect with as either a you know a victim of uh, as as certainly i have been uh, and not just me way swathes of other people who um end up responding to what it is they experience and face in the in in the workplace that is the civil service um 
you know, I joined the civil service um, for a number of reasons. I've touched on and one of those in this podcast, but but part of it was about my calling to serve. Part of it was about meeting the needs of people from, I guess, my community as, as a priority, but alongside other members of the community as well. But a kind of even before the language we now use, but really having a sense of, you know, including everybody. And what navigating the labyrinth shines a light on is that um, a lot of the practices, policies and procedures that have become tradition in the civil service um, don't do that. In fact, uh, they just it's not just that they don't do that. They actually um, at times deliberately do the opposite. They exclude um, and it's a conscious exclusion. Um, and as someone that uh, loves the civil service, that has a real clear thought about what the civil service is there to do, having worked in it for 38 years, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that uh, with any smile on my face. I say that because of my experience and the experience of others that I have uh, worked alongside and indeed others that I've supported. And so the institutional isms that afflict the civil service are wound up in and are are perpetuated and maintained by those policies those practices and procedures and so it, it, it's 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 something that needs to be uh, addressed more it's something that needs to be worked at and it needs to be worked at by people who have a frame of reference that is capable of working at all of it um, and that, you know, is something that, that is still on my agenda, even from the position I now occupy, which is outside of the mm-hmm. machine, mm-hmm. but still working at times with it. Mm. Well, that, I think that leads us really nicely on to the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is, um, you know, in the MOJ, the Black Staff Network that you were heavily involved in setting up. So tell us a bit about that and how that came about and what you did. Well, it, it's 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 a role that was offered to me, um, for, again, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and ironically, the list of reasons ended with, well, it started with and ended with, and we're not asking you, Rob, because you're black. You know, <laughs> we're asking you, Rob, because you've worked on the what's called operational posts. Uh, I was working in the county court dealing with um, the customer facing. Um, we're asking you, Rob, because you've been a trainer and you're a qualified trainer. So you get what it takes to impart information and knowledge and, and encourage people to offer their best at work. But we're asking you, Rob, because you've worked at headquarters office. Um, so in a sense, they were... They were promoting the, the the social capital that I'd built. They were promoting my connectivity. They were promoting uh, a, a bit of my personality in that I was someone that could work across traditional lines. Um, and, and all of that, uh, he said immodestly, uh, is true. But they weren't um, uh, able, they weren't capable of acknowledging um, one of those reasons would, would be to do with my background and experience. They, they were clumsy around that. It was a clunky thought. So I had to think about it um, because I wasn't sure they were ready for what would come next. You see, Melody, I knew um, I could almost prophetically predict that, that this network, with the, certainly with the people I was going to 
uh, invite to get involved and if they said yes was going to take off mm-hmm. it, 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 in many ways melody the network already existed in a kind of subterranean form uh, black staff indeed a number of different groups that were underrepresented across the civil service already had networks that enabled them to get from day to day literally we had our own a and e we had our own triage to deal with racism um to deal with discrimination and to to work with with people and individuals who had faced this turbulence in the workplace um and some of us were beginning to study uh, deeper uh, some of the the wonderful uh, narratives available to us some of the wonderful teachings from the likes of Franz Fanon uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and others who had spoken about uh, critical race theory in the past, but even present day um, uh, experts and subject matter experts like Dr. Nicola Rollock, um, who talks about critical race theory. So we were doing a lot of that kind of boot camp effort out of sight, uh, not for any other reason than it wasn't part of the currency of our work in the workplace. And now they were going to they were going to sanction and finance and budget a staff network for black staff and they were going to ask me and I was then going to invite others to lead that Ooh, some of us were like a kid in a sweet shop and what was it that um meant that that was the time that suddenly um you know there was an interest in the the black staff network what I think that the single biggest catalyst was uh, the Lawrence report mm-hmm we, we are now at the, the end of the 90s, we're, we're stepping towards the noughties and uh, the white paper um, that was produced, um, that, that document that, that, that everyone has to read, certainly at a certain level um, at the top of the civil service, um, was not just published, uh, but the, um, the, the incompetent investigation into uh, Stephen Lawrence's murder, um, which you know took a change of government to to be uh, commissioned, which took a change of political will to find uh, appropriate attention, but had produced through uh, the late William McPherson and his team um, a report that offered to the UK a definition of institutional racism. And so with the language, uh, and that's all important in the civil service, but with the language uh, uh, in the year 1999 and then the ensuing years, uh, 2000 and 2001, uh, people like myself um, and and, uh, were able to open the door into a, a room of conversation about institutional racism. We even went as far as explaining to those at the very top of government departments that this isn't a brand new term. It's a term that that has come from uh, the United States, introduced by Stokely Carmichael in 1968. We are catching up and uh, there are many lessons we can take from the US, uh, acknowledging that there are some differences, but we can accelerate our response to what's happened in the Metropolitan Police Force. And it's ironic that we should be having this podcast in a year where Mm -hmm. uh, Casey has just revisited some of the um, institutional, um, not just racism, but misogyny, homophobia, and all of what goes on 
in with facts with incidents and yet we 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 again have this podcast at a time where the very uh, top of that leadership um, whilst accepting the findings of uh, the Casey review uh, still has an issue um, and a form of denial around the term institutional racism um, and institutionally any form of discrimination and I think uh, and this is a personal view melody um, and I think it is relevant to to what it is we're trying to deliver and achieve here there is a gap in the understanding of some of our senior leaders and indeed some of our elected officials ministers and secretaries of state there's a gap in the knowledge and understanding as to what institutional racism is and that's the politest way I could put it some of that gap is through neglect and and ignorance but some of that gap is deliberate they don't want to know what institutional racism means because they think that it will be interpreted as they personally being racist or individuals being racist and whilst that might be true mm -hmm. of some um, institutional racism is an altogether different dimension of racism and needs to be dealt with in a different way and, and, and if you don't uh, it's not one you know it's not a, a single rotten apple in the barrel as 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 was highlighted by Lord Scarman in the early 80s it's actually the barrel that's rotten and so it's the barrel makers and the barrels themselves that need to be transformed. And that's the attention that's required. And that's what uh, Tony Sewell and his commissioners missed in the commissioned report into racial and ethnic disparities. That's what they missed. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure you felt, I mean, it, there was just, I think, shock waves when, when you know, reports come out saying there's no, you know, institutional racism doesn't exist. And... Well, well, I, I put just one caveat on that word shock, Melody, because um, I wasn't shocked when mm. I read those 143 pages. I wasn't shocked um, by um, the uh, description around the four overarching aims or indeed the 24 recommendations, um, some of which are on the money and very good. Let me say mm. that. But I wasn't shocked that Tony and um, the some of some of his because a couple of them have distanced themselves from the report, interestingly. But I wasn't shocked that a number of the commissioners uh, and Tony concluded that institutional racism was no longer an impact in the UK, and that all of us, regardless of our ethnicity or race, could get to where we wanted to or could maximise our potential by pulling up our bootstraps. I wasn't shocked by that narrative because I happened to have worked alongside Tony for a year at the Youth Justice Board. And I know some of Tony's politics, certainly enough of his politics to uh, not be shocked by that outcome. Right. Uh, other factors at play. And I, I can accept that some people were shocked um, and I can accept that some people were shocked, uh, you know, uh, within the black community because there was a hope that we had when that report was commissioned. And so they're speaking from their uh, hope not fulfilled. But I personally wasn't shocked. I, I predicted it along with others. And, you know, we, we, we still have work to do because whilst it was an opportunity to shine a light on what really impacts um, us as, as a community, and by that I mean Black and Asian uh, and minority ethnic peoples, it was an opportunity that was missed it was an opportunity that was dropped and and there were all sorts of reasons why that happened mm -hmm. 
So let's, um, you know, take you from having set up what would no doubt be one of the first um, black staff networks, probably in the UK, I would say. Um, there's still plenty of organisations that still don't have one over 20 years later. Um, you then moved into, well, you mentioned already, you know, you'd started in a, uh, in a role where you were a trainer, but then you had an opportunity to go on loan, I think that was the right uh, terminology, yeah. to the USA. Do you want to um, say some more about that? Sure, certainly. And just very quickly in passing, we were, I think, the third government department to launch a Black Staff Network. The very first was, in fact, um, uh, launched at the Cabinet Office. It was called COBAN. That mm -hmm. was the Cabinet Office Black and Asian Network called COBAN. number of dear friends involved in that, including um, the wonderful Sandra Kerr, who does work at uh, business in the community mm -hmm. with Race for Opportunity and the Race at Work Charter. Um, the late Sharon Grant, uh, a, a, a phenomenal individual um, who uh, was part of the engine room in pulling that together and was later to join me and some others on the Civil Service Race Equality Network, which is like an umbrella race network, a kind of planet network mm -hmm. of all the Black Star Networks coming together to form that wider social capital, over 6,000 members at our height. Um, and um, Selvin uh, Brown, who is now a member mm -hmm. of the Civil Service, working in the Civil Service to this day. And they were instigators of that very first uh, Black Star Network and mm -hmm. we followed some of their lead. Actually, and you've just made me think of something, Rob, before we jump on, because um, not everyone who's listening to this will have had any involvement in a staff network. They may, you know, you and I both work with staff networks. You know, we know that world. We know the importance of what they do. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, if someone who was not involved at all said to you, why even have a staff network? What do they do? What What's the purpose? Mm. What would you say? Well, I, I think uh, I think that staff networks are um, intrinsic owners of issues that, for a, a variety of reasons, those that are in positions of power and leadership in an organisation might otherwise miss. Uh, and so um, I think that staff networks, where they form, and they nearly always form not upon... Um, request or prescription, but they form organically um, because of a gap in the provision and service for those members, for those often underrepresented groups. So, for example, if you're talking about a black staff network and you look at the corporate board, the executive board, um, and you you see literally upon site that that there are no uh, there there is no representation on that board. Um, there's no voice necessarily that can speak on your behalf or from that perspective. Uh, the same reads for gender, the same may read for disability. I appreciate that some disabilities are invisible, so we can't always be certain of that. Uh, they may read the same for LGBTQ plus community. But, but on that logic alone, uh, and I know there's more to that uh, argument, more to that narrative, but, but on that logic alone about having a reflective workforce at all levels, and I like to use the phrase, in decision-making spaces. They don't come more decision-making than an executive board, but there are other decision-making spaces. What we're looking for is a reflective workforce, a, 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 a workforce that can reflect 
the communities that we serve. And certainly in my experience and throughout my career, and I would argue to the present day, um, we're not hitting those targets, if I may put it that way. We're not reflecting those that we serve. And so what, what staff networks can offer any organization is a, a space and a, a safe space almost automatically um, not saying you don't have to work at it like you do in all safe spaces, but but it kind of gets a, a bit of a head start on a safe space for um, intrinsic owners of the issue to come together, to shout and holler, to advocate and uh, to actively um, increase the volume around their lived experience in the organization. And uh, I like to reach for the phrase uh, and Melody, I'm, I know it's the one you're familiar with, but but some of our listeners may want to uh, make a note and, and catch up with it. And that is around being a tempered radical. Mm-hmm. It's about knowing that with your love for the organization you're working so hard in, it is that that gives you permission to be critical of it. That your love of the organization, your compassion for the organization, your commitment and belonging in the organization, wherever that may be at, is what gives you license to say, look, we're not doing this right. We can do this better. Have we got the right people in the room? How can we attract the difference? How can we promote, encourage, inspire the difference to be all that they can be in this organization? And staff networks, uh, you know, ostensibly at the heart of its work and operation, is a space for tempered radicals to move in, to 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 make it a, a home, and to keep connected with their ambition, which is to make the organisation they're in a better one. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Thanks very much. So let's jump to the US. Mm. How did you end up going out there? What what happened? What did you learn? Who did you meet? Wow. Well, this is. A- <laughs> It's a, a nothing, nothing other than a, a, a kind of a, almost a fantasy come true, but a dream phase in my career. Um, and what happened was, having bumped into um, a, a, a racist line manager, and I say that again, not lightly, but because of my experience, because of what was said to me, and what was done around me in my career at the time, I was uh, in a conversation with the HR director. Uh, who uh, was um, uh, encouraging uh, around my career and had had seen some of the effective work that I delivered uh, with a team behind me, but 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 was a supporter of what I was trying to do, a supporter of my tempered radicalism, and they felt it would be um, useful for me to work somewhere else for a season to collect myself, to collect my ambitions and and on a day in the future return. There wasn't any fixed period to it uh, initially, but uh, she felt that that would be the best way forward given uh, the almost impasse, uh, certainly antlers locked with a very senior member of the department that I was involved with. Now I was I was a lot younger then, I guess, certainly in my understanding of what was going on. And looking back, I could have taken a couple of options to really um, reach for the rule book and, and, and bring some people to, to task around what was going on. But I, I took the option that was um, um, more supportive of, of me offering my best in the, in the working space. And I was, was taken up with a loan, effectively working outside the sector 
but still retaining my civil service terms. Uh, a lot of people were doing that at that time. Some of it as a forethought. I was, mine was a reaction to a situation. And I went to work at what was uh, then called the 1990 Trust, which um, was a uh, civil rights, sorry, sorry, a human rights and race equality organization, a human rights and uh, uh, race equality organization. And leading that up at the time was a Karen Chowan, um, just a phenomenal uh, teacher, uh, a phenomenal uh, civil rights and human rights expert in her own right. And she was um, uh, running uh, an, uh, an, a project that would look at um, learning from the agenda in the United States around delivering on civil rights. And that included uh, a trip out to uh, Chicago, USA, and working with the uh, Push Rainbow uh, Network uh, that was led by none other than the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Wow. And so we got up close and personal with the Reverend um, uh, and a thought goes out to him uh, right now. He's not in the best of health and um, uh, he's uh, more confined than he would ever want to be as uh, an activist that he is and a firebrand orator that he is. So we don't see much of him these days. But um, with him and his team, we were kind of, ex we were introduced to some of their strategies and thinking. Um, and we were then able to set up a wonderful project, which was entitled Equonomics Melody. It, it didn't take off for a number of reasons, um, but it did exist for a year, uh, or just over a year actually, um, with the wonderful Whitney Isles and others working on that. And um, I was a part of that uh, team. And we brought the Reverend Jesse Jackson to the UK. We went to nine cities in seven days. And we talked about the relationship between economics and race equality. And we um, worked with a number of leading voices around um, shining a light on that relationship to kind of move us forward in the uh, work that was needed, not just in the public sector and therefore the services that the public sector provide, but also in the private sector as well. And so we hit Leicester, Liverpool, we went to Cardiff, we went uh, to I think three locations in London, um, we went to Birmingham, Glasgow, um, I think I'm just about on certainly the nine that we did in seven days there and um, it was a it was a wonderful experience. It was fast and furious. I learned so much uh, and worked with some powerhouses, including the likes of uh, Lord Woolley, that's um, uh, Sir Simon Woolley, mm -hmm. who now uh, works as a uh, vice chancellor at uh, Hamilton out of Cambridge. Um, Lee Jasper, um, for many controversial, but, but a, a, a firebrand uh, orator and a wonderful just a wonderful exponent of race equality across the uk and former advisor to uh the mayor of london when it was ken livingston and a thought to him at this point as he's not well um, and others and others in that period so it was just a, a wonderful schooling for me one that i'm still continuing to to learn from i was able to work with others melody to to write some stuff i i was uh, i always had a an anchor back at the civil service i guess 
um, and I knew I'd be back there one day and it was slightly longer than I thought it would be. It was originally mapped out once we'd gone past the green light to go, but it was mapped out in paper as a year, but it became two and a half years and I loved every single second of it. What you said you learned a lot and you've mentioned a, a number of uh, firebrand orators is the phrase you use and I've seen you speak on a stage and you have an, a real intensity and passion in the way that you speak did you have that before did is that something you learned from them I'm curious well first of all thank you very much to um to say that um I know it might not be everyone's cup of tea but it certainly lands as a as a compliment for me so thank you um it's something that I've always um uh, reached for it's something that I've always um uh, played with um, in terms of uh, an audience and saying something that will move them, uh, saying something that will inspire them and empower them. So I guess it's always something that I've reached for. Um, uh, the, the, the modest part of me, and, and that's, that's not the greater part, but the modest part of me says it's down to the audience to decide whether it lands in that way. But that's certainly something that I've always aimed for. I've, I've, I've read the works of Martin Luther King Jr. I've always been inspired by his oratory, but I've, long before I met the Reverend Jesse Jackson, I, I always warmed to what he had to do and say. More recently, of course, President Barack Obama, um, but, but others who have spoken powerfully uh, on uh, the stage, um, Mayor Angelou. Um, uh, I went to watch, um, um the recently but the uh, dr robin d'angelo um who wrote her book white um fragility mm -hmm. uh, she she uh, speaks powerfully um but a, but a number of of people fit the the category for me and i i kind of um connect with them readily and quite easily and aspire to speak in a way that will empower and inspire people to do what they've got to do uh, after after any of the sessions that I deliver. Great, thank you. Let's um go back to the civil service mm -hmm. um and uh, project race, mm -hmm. which you were involved in. Was that 2018? Is that right? That right, yeah, May mm -hmm. of that year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about Project Race. Well, Project Race came about um, really out of a uh, a. a a kind of a, almost a rejection of the of the Black Staff Network um, because uh, the Black Staff Network had through peaks and troughs uh, but proud as we were called people from diverse racial origins uniting the department had had uh, as I say peaked and troughed uh, through a period of time since its uh, launch back in 2001 and um, for all sorts of reasons um, there was a uh, uh, an insistence that all networks be leveled off and be treated the same. For those of us who were working on the Proud Staff Network, we didn't think that was uh, appropriate. We didn't. We thought that was clumsy at best. But we thought it was actually um, insensitive to the priority around race and race equality. We're not saying that the other uh, inequalities didn't exist. We're just saying that the impact of them wasn't as great. And so there needed to be some more intelligence, more data, more um, thought into allocation of resources, 
uh, and um, access to decision-making spaces. So in response to, um, and it, over a period of time, we didn't just immediately move to Project Raise. We, we thought, uh, and by we, I mean the people that were, many of whom were working on the network at the time, the, the Proud Network, felt that there was a need to move to another position where we could uh, be um, um, acknowledged as part of the governance structure, um, that we could be part of the business planning cycle, that we could, uh, with, with our work and effort, which remained high level and hard, produce the empirical evidence, mix it with the anecdotal stuff, those personal stories, and I love what Brené Brown has to say about uh, personal stories. She's saying personal stories are data, but they're data with a soul. Mm. So that's what we set about doing. Thank you, Brené. But we said, look, we can't leave out, the, obviously, the number crunching that goes on, the scores on the doors, the empirical stuff. A lot of people are persuaded by that, and particularly in the civil service, and that's not a criticism. That's absolutely necessary. But nor should we leave out the anecdotal stuff, the lived experience, the personal stories, that personal data, the data with a soul, because traditionally the civil service ain't been good at soul and working with soulful stories. So we we decided that uh, as an approach, what if we came up with a, a, a formalized project that looked at delivering on racial equity, that looked at um, delivering a reflective workforce in terms of race and ethnicity. Wouldn't that be a thing? And we got together with some like-spirited, like-minded people at all levels. And we got into a room and we had a good old thrash out about it uh, across a two-day uh, agenda. And um, after work with the internal comms team, where we went into the room, Melody, with the race project for what was then the DCA, Department of Constitutional Affairs. Um, we came out of the room, uh, not with the race project for DCA, but with project race for the DCA. Some felt it sounded more like a mission that we were gonna move from here on a journey. And so that was uh, what internal comms helped us to rename and rebrand. But uh, a member of the SCS, uh, my dear friend, uh, Alison, Alison Wedge, she actually came up with our strap line, which was big, bold, brave. Um, and we all loved it instantly. Big, bold and brave was Project Race. And we set about our work with the endorsement of the permanent secretary, then Richard Heaton, later to become Sir Richard Heaton, who's now just um, signed up after a period uh, of absence from the civil service. He's just returned to lead the art collection for the civil service, that's his post always a lover of art was Richard, but he endorsed Project Race and we set about our work. Um, tell me a bit about, you know, what kind of uh, outcomes did you achieve? What, you know, how do you feel about it now looking back on it, you know, a few years later? Well, I, I feel uh, ironically, <laughs> uh, don't want to sound cliche, I, I feel proud about it, actually. We, we lasted about two years, just short of. We had three full-time staff, myself, um, uh, the wonderful uh, Yvonne Dowie, who still remains in the civil service, um, uh, and she's uh, plugging away at the same sorts of issues and some, and also still in the civil service, the um, the engine room of our effort, Alpa, or rather Artie, I'd worked with an Alpa previously, 
uh, also playing a similar role with the Proud Network, Alpha Patel, who's now left the civil service. But Artie Patel, um, who's still in the civil service, was uh, our engine room, and she kept us honest around all of the, the financial uh, and governance structures. She was just a brilliant individual working on the kind of administration. But I feel proud about Project Race because we did a number of things. We increased applications from the black community for uh, job promotions, for job elevation, and some of those were successful, and we increased those. We, we closed the gap um, between white and black staff in terms of diversity um, diversity uh, data. Um, there was there was a at the time an eighty four percent return from white staff when declaring their diversity details. A, a healthy figure uh, across most departments, but but one with a little bit more room for improvement, and one that they were working on uh, from HR to all staff. But the same readout for black. Age and minority ethnic staff fell, uh, had fallen to 73%, some 11% lower. Uh, these figures I'll never forget because what we did in 12 months was we supported and ran a campaign to, um, to increase the response rate amongst the Black, Asian, and minority ethnic community. You know, we ran workshops, we spoke to individuals why it's important to declare your diversity data. We get it that the department, in your view, has let you down but we are now looking to take a run up to offering your best and making sure that you maximize your potential. Um, you say we did, um, uh, your view counts. We can't provide for all of the population unless we know where all of the population is. And so in 12 months, we went from 73% to 86% on that response rate, out uh, stripping uh, the white population actually for the first time, certainly in my history to that point, and we were able to make decisions based on that data. And so we did a lot along that journey, increasing the understanding and awareness of uh, and, and importance of empirical data to uh, our members, uh, because the relationship between Project Race Melody and the Proud Staff Network was maintained. It wasn't either or, it was mm -hmm. both and. Okay. So we worked in collaboration um, and alongside us, uh, as mentioned uh, names previously, but um, uh, the wonderful Olivia Ebanks uh, uh, and uh, Aon Swinton became um, uh, chairs of the Proud Staff Network consecutively and mm -hmm. the relationship was maintained. So it was so important to keep those working together in partnership and that's what we did. Mm. Let's just, um, we haven't got much time and I just want to make sure that we just capture um... You know, what caused you to finally leave the civil service? You 38 years mm. and you've left and set up Crystal Alliance. What why why you know why at that time did you choose to to go and do something else? Well, as as with, with something of that magnitude, I guess for, for, for most of us who, who have been in that position, it, it wasn't um it wasn't uh, an easy decision. It wasn't a decision I took lightly. But it was one that felt inevitable, uh, if, 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 if I, I can offer that, what might appear for some contradiction. Um, the biggest single thing was, was what I saw coming down the track. Uh, when I look at things like Windrush Melody um, and the way that that was handled, you know, my heart aches, not just as someone uh, of Jamaican heritage, um, both both my parents are from the island of Jamaica. My dad no longer with us, sadly. He passed away in 20, 
um, 18, um, coming up five years this uh, year, November actually, November the 21st, dad left us. But, but, but both my parents, dad in, uh, in, in 1960, mum in 1963, came to uh, the UK from uh, the island of Jamaica. Uh, dad is a carpenter, my mum is a nurse, to um, work hard, that's all they knew, uh, to send home what they could and to return home actually uh, was their uh, original uh, plan. Um, but I came around in 64, my brother followed in um, late 65. So quite quickly, mum had two young, uh, well, babies um, and both in nappies at the time. And, and so she changed her, her plan, she pivoted um, dad uh, was able to stick around for long enough to also change some of his plans um, but I couldn't help but be impacted and, and, and as I know a number of people not just from the Caribbean community but also uh, beyond the Caribbean community um, lots of relationships and unions had formed and so when Windrush came about and the way in which Windrush was handled and its policy about uh, you know having individuals in some cases, forcibly returned to a land that they were totally unfamiliar with, that made the UK their home, some of them 40, 50 years plus. Um, I, I just couldn't understand, and I felt ashamed to be a civil servant responsible for such a policy. And it added to the weight I was feeling about the direction of travel for uh, the, the complexion of this uh, government and indeed the current government. And so, um, I, I felt I needed to make a decision about that. I felt I, I, I needed to, um, um, whilst there was still strength in my body and I still had an idea or two about how I could help organizations be more inclusive, I, I, I felt I needed to do something um, that would uh, help me fulfill that ambition. And I looked at my uh, tenure, I'd certainly given it a good go, uh, I'd sign up to the whole tempered radicalism um, badge and I'd certainly given it as much as I could from within the machine uh, that is Whitehall and indeed the wider civil service. And um, I felt that my best efforts would be uh, now outside of that and looking to work with others, both inside and outside, to help organisations be more inclusive. And so Crystal Alliance was born. Perfect. Thank you. So I'm going to finish off by asking you a couple of uh, questions that I ask all my guests, uh, one of which is what advice would you give to your younger self? There's a few, thing that pop, a few things that pop into my mind. I think if I was speaking to the younger me, I would want to, I'd probably have to think about the right words because all sorts of things have happened to me as I've travelled, but I'd want to say to Rob, you don't have to have, and you know, you don't, you certainly don't have to seek white validation. Mm. The, the, I mean, this came to me really late in my career, the second half of my career. Uh, you know, for for the first decade, I really, 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 and I think a part of me will always believe in meritocracy, and that all I needed to do to maximize my potential was to offer my best deliver my best and to um, outperform any of my friends or colleagues that were competing against me for a post or a way of thinking or a way of doing something. And I realized about 10 years in, it took me another five or six years to really do anything about it, I guess. But 
that actually meritocracy has become a myth. It's, it's, not, it's not true, sadly. Again, I say this with an aching heart. I wish it was true, but the, the evidence is overwhelming. Something else was going on. And, it, and in, sadly, in some spaces, in some parts of some departments, it's still going on. Nepotistic practices, the labyrinth, the need to know, the pronounced, uh, you know, the received pronunciation, all of that. You know, the Radio 2, the Golf Club, all of that stuff, Melody, is still going on, sadly. And so I would say to my younger self, you don't have to seek white validation. Thank you. I hear that. Um, my second question is around a strapline or a title for your story. Oh, there we are. I, I sign off my emails, Stay Strong which is um, a bit cliched, a bit Tom Robbins, I guess. But it is about, you know, whatever happens, whatever comes your way, stay strong because tomorrow is on its way and your pathway to offering your best is always with you. Um, and so stay strong comes to mind. But I kind of like what we've got at Crystal Alliance, the involve to evolve, that actually our best future is available to us if we can involve more of our people and hear from more of them about how we need to do our work around here. What is the culture we're, we're seeking to uh, take on? And I think involve to evolve is a way of saying that. Lovely. Thank you. And final question mm. is, um, I'm going to be putting this episode out during Black History Month, which is uh, October. Yeah. And I'm just curious on your thoughts about Black History Month and what advice would you give to people who maybe want to be more involved or to understand more, you know, I just want to hear your thoughts, really. Sure. Well, do you know, I've, um, again, this is, uh, my view on Black History Month has evolved over the years. Um, I've always enjoyed a focused attention on things uh, that have uh, impacted across the world, both historically and in the present day, whether it's, you know, parts of the mobile phone, traffic lights, you know, uh, blood transfusion, all of the kind of almost somewhat more well-known uh, facts, even though they may have started out as lesser known facts about the contribution of the African diaspora, contribution of black people across the world. Um, I, I do sometimes respond to questions of this type, Melody, by saying I'm black every day and every <laughs> month is Black History Month. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there is a strong argument, and I have a lot of sympathy with the argument. But, you know, I like uh, and welcome the attention to uh, Black history that October in this part of the world provides. It's January in the US. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something of an opportunity to really turn up uh, the volume, to increase uh, the, the brightness, if not whack up the contrast on contributions. I love this year's theme, uh, which is being led by the wonderful Sharon Inkotaria, author of, ironically, the um, incredible power of staff networks, by the way, and the leader of that group, the National Day for Staff Network, which happens on the second Wednesday of every May and will be on the 8th of May in 2024. But what Sharon talks about and leading the editorial production of this year's theme is saluting our uh, sisters. Uh, it's a focus on black women this year, uh, about time too. And the overarching uh, theme is We Matter. 
and that's a pushback against some of the war on woke and the war on uh, uh, culture wars around uh, Black Lives Matter. But I think that Black History Month is a wonderful opportunity to um, increase uh, a focused attention on those contributions, just as other uh, protected characteristics now have a period in the year um, where, whether it's June and Pride, whether it's, you know, um, uh, the National Week for Inclusion, which uh, kicks off yes, uh, next uh, week. <laughs> I think these are wonderful opportunities to bring to the fore of people's minds those lesser known facts, but the current practice around delivering on equity and inclusion. And so I welcome it in that sense. Of course, I'm Black every day of the year, mm -hmm. as are many other members of our Black community. And we know that the lived experience, some of it, the turbulence, um, is something we deal with every uh, day of the year. But Black History Month is an opportunity for us all to come together and uh, really promote those lesser known facts and acknowledge uh, certainly where it came from um, and what it is we're doing each time, uh, each October here in the UK around Black History. Thank you, Rob. Really loved hearing those thoughts. And thank you so much for your You're time. Welcome. I have loved, absolutely loved this conversation. It's been fascinating. Um, yeah, I just like peering into your brain. So um, yeah, just want to say a huge thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, if people want to get in touch with you, all the information will be in the show notes. This is such a fascinating interview for me. I've seen Rob speak and I've known him for a while, but it was just fantastic to go back over his career and understand just how long um, he's been involved in really fighting for race, equity, race equality. Um, and I was particularly um, interested in the discussion we had around some of the more structural elements of inclusion and, and his perspective on uh, recent reports reporting that there's no such thing as um, uh, institutional racism in in the UK, and you know his his analogy around it's not a single rotten apple in the barrel; it's the barrel that's rotten. Really, really struck home for me, and I thought it was a very good way of thinking about uh, some of the rhetoric that we're hearing these days. The other thing that struck me about Rob, aside from his passion and his eloquence, is his phenomenal memory. And I said this to him when we weren't recording. Um, I'm deeply envious of his ability to recall people and places and dates. And what I really love is uh, the way he really celebrates and recognises the role that other people have had and, and names those people so that he's not just taking the the plaudits for himself but actually recognizing the role that others have had and sharing that uh, as part of this recording so you can all hear what amazing work other people are doing too this podcast is brought to you by liberare consulting with editing provided by hawkins social if you enjoyed today's episode why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes we look forward to welcoming you back soon.